Welcome to Is It Worth It, the self-worth podcast where we explore how different areas of our life affect our self-worth and how to build and maintain our sense of self-worth. My name is Roshni and I am a self-worth life coach. I help my clients discover their worth so they can stop holding back and start taking control of their lives full force. You can find my other free content under the name Beti Grew Up, that's B-E-T-I Grew Up, on Instagram and YouTube, and you can sign up for my free newsletter at BetiGrewUp.com. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode. So before I jump into the episode, I wanted to put out a quick disclaimer that this is a little bit different than some of my previous episodes. So it's still going to be just a solo episode of me talking, but I'm going to be talking a little bit more about self-trust. And throughout this episode, I'm also going to be referencing the South Asian culture a lot. So if you know me, you know that I'm Gujarati, I'm South Asian, and I really have been noticing all the ways that our society tends to disempower women. And this is something that over time I've realized really causes us to not trust ourselves. A lot of us as millennials are kind of on this new journey of finding what it means to trust ourselves, to make decisions for ourselves and not for everyone else, and to really just kind of live for ourselves and not live for these expectations that others have set for us without even asking us, you know? And so all of these topics have really fired me up lately and I've been talking a lot about them on Instagram and beyond. And I just wanted to let you know that while in this episode I am definitely talking about South Asian culture a lot, this episode is still for you if you relate to topics of not being able to trust yourself, not knowing how to follow your intuition, not knowing how to set goals, feeling like you procrastinate on your dreams. If you relate to a lot of things like that, you will still be able to relate to this episode. But I will talk more about this towards the end of the episode, but I am launching an online course called Not Your Betty, a guide to self-trust and decision-making for South Asian women. And this is going to be such a powerful course. It launches on February 2nd. And like I said, all of the details will be towards the end of the episode. But if you are inspired by my podcast episodes and you want to keep working with me, but you're not a South Asian woman, don't worry. All of my one-on-one self-worth coaching sessions and my one-on-one tarot reading and self-worth combination coaching sessions are still available to anyone who is interested. Um, those are not limited to a South Asian audience at all. So if you're still interested in working with me one-on-one to raise your self-worth and deepen your level of self-trust, then head to the two links in the show notes where you'll be able to learn more and book your session. And if you listen to me and you don't identify as a woman or this topic doesn't really relate to you specifically, I will be going back to talking more about self-worth, of course, on this self-worth podcast over the next few episodes. But self-worth and self-trust are inextricably linked. And so if you're interested in that relationship, then definitely keep on listening. I hope you enjoy the episode. So I want to start by talking a little bit about how self-trust and self-worth are related because they are both extremely foundational. I feel like self-trust, self-worth, and self-love all go hand in hand. Maybe even self-care, whether you consider that separate or a part of self-love, I feel like all of these are so integral to one another. The more that we believe that we are worthy and deserving, the more that we can take action towards those things. And those actions being things like setting boundaries or saying no or walking away from a relationship or a work environment or some sort of partnership that is really not serving you, things like that. 
And that action piece, it really just kind of boils down to self-trust. Can you trust yourself to set boundaries when people are kind of running over you? You know, do you have the ability to walk away from um, something that is harmful, even if that's like a work environment or just kind of an office culture or something like that. And, you know, there's nuances and layers to all of this. All of this takes work. But when you really believe that you are worthy or deserving of something, then you that's kind of the first step. But you can believe that you're deserving and still not really make that an action in your life. You know, you could go into a toxic work environment in your office and know that you deserve better, but still feel stuck when it comes to doing something about it or taking that next step. And that's where self-trust comes in. Self-trust really allows you to, you know, trust yourself to act in accordance with what you believe you are deserving of. Within the South Asian culture, our culture is very family focused and that's really beautiful, but it's not necessarily equal. You know, in a family dynamic or even in kind of like a nuclear family home, you will see a hierarchy. And in all honesty, South Asian women really fall to the bottom. So, you know, even as a child, you are taught to, you know, do things like stay out of the sun or, you know, understand and learn how to cook from a really young age. You're given chores like cleaning the house frequently, even if um, South Asian boys don't have to deal with the same thing. And so as you get older, you know, you're, you're, really valued by the roles that you provide other people within your society. So, you know, you are taught to be a good daughter. You're taught to eventually be a good daughter-in-law. You're taught to be, you know, a good sibling. You're taught to be a good student. You're taught to be a mother. You're taught to be a good wife. And so every single step of your life journey, you're there for someone else. And, you know, even with kind of the traditional marriage structure, it's not always like this anymore, but it is for a lot of people, they have to move into their in-laws house when they get married. And so not only are you, you know, a daughter-in-law sometimes, but you are like a full-time wife, full-time daughter-in-law and full-time mother. And in a lot of these roles, the daughter-in-laws, this isn't always true, but a lot of the time they are kind of like a housemaid. They're just meant to, you know, run after everyone, constantly clean and cook and do everything for everyone. So not only are you potentially caring for your older in-laws, but you're caring for your children. You have to have everything ready for your husband. And I mean, just saying that sounds exhausting. Like that does not sound like a good life for anyone to live. And it's really just that your autonomy is taken away from you. If every step of the way, you're the one in control saying, I want to live here. I want to do this. I want to, you know, cook dinner for you and do all these things. And that's great. That gives you, that puts you back in the driver's seat and gives you a choice. Even if you're happy with one part of it, like you're happy with the person that you married, there's so many things that come along that, that come on top of that, that you have to then accommodate everyone. And that's what I think is really frustrating. So we're constantly told what our place is and how we can best make everyone else comfortable. And so again, like I said, this starts at a very, very young age. It's not like we're autonomous all the way until we're married and then it turns into an issue. We're always taught to put other people first and to put the comfort of other people first. And we all know, at least the South Asian women listening, know what it is like to go into a family function where there's hundreds of people potentially. And, you know, having every elder, every person, whether they're blood related to you or not, ask you all these personal questions about your weight, your complexion, your uh, relationship status, your studies, where you live, like all this stuff is constantly coming up. And we 
you know, are just taught to answer them or to be polite. And so there's all these times where really through all of this, we're, we're constantly be t- being told that what we want or what we need matters less than what other people want from us. So our even our needs come below others' wants. And that's something that I find incredibly frustrating and just simply not okay anymore. So what results from all of this is a harsh inner critic and self-policing. So when I talk about the inner critic, what I'm talking about is that voice in your head that just stops you immediately, you know, from from doing things. So um, when I was first launching my business, this is, you know, I always go back to talking about my business because it was one of the scariest things I've ever done in my life. Um, It was really scary because I didn't have to do it. No one was making me do it. But the first thoughts that came to my head when I was like, oh, I should start a YouTube channel or, oh, I should, you know, be a coach or whatever, the, the thoughts always came up that said, you know, who are you to do this? Who do you think you are? No one's going to listen to you. You're too young. You're this and that. Like, you don't actually know anything. You're not going to be able to help anyone. No one cares what you have to say. Like, these constant stream of negative thoughts and just kind of like this inner bullying, right? Like, that inner critic, it really does just stop you from taking the next step because you get stuck in such a whirlwind of thoughts. And, you know, eventually, even if sometimes it took a week, sometimes it takes a month, sometimes it takes a day, but I was able to push through those. And I still have those thoughts coming up when I try new things or when I do things that scare me. It's something that, you know, it it still comes up, but I've been so much better at dealing with it or at not listening to it and not getting sucked into every single one of those thoughts. You know, and when I notice that I'm starting to stop myself, that's when I'm like, oh, this is just that bully coming up again, right? But the most important thing that's helped me work on my inner critic is knowing that your inner critic does not come from you. And this is something that I studied when I was studying NLP, which is neuro-linguistic programming. But one of the foundations really talks about how your, your inner critic was not your original voice. You know, you weren't as a three, four-year-old going up to yourself in the mirror and saying, who do you think you are? How dare you do this? You know what I mean? But maybe you had a parent that said something like that to you. Or, you know, maybe, and that's the thing too, it's most of our first bullies are actually within our family structure. So whether that's an aunt, an uncle, a parent, and these could happen in moments where they are genuinely frustrated and being a parent is hard. So I understand that. But at the same time, it's hard because you have a responsibility to keep up. And a lot of those words, whether your parents meant them or not, they really stick. I'm sure that you could, you know, if you thought about it, you could go back to a few particular insults in your childhood that really stung that you still remember as an adult, you know, so these words, they cut deep. And those initial very first examples of being bullied, whether it was in your family structure or outside of it, that becomes internalized because you're experiencing so much shame and so much pain in that moment, right? If you're a kid and you break a lamp or something and you just get absolutely annihilated by your parents who just tell you you're stupid and you're useless and you can never do anything right and just all of these kind of word vomit emotions onto you, you're going to be so shocked because no one's ever talked to you before that way. But also, as your parents, they're your superheroes. They're the givers of truth when you're such a little kid, right? So if they're telling you that you're worthless and that you're useless and that you always make things harder for them, then obviously that's going to be ingrained into a very deep part of you. And so that essentially becomes like that mechanism that wants to protect you from that shame, right? So instead of it being an outer 
someone external or a different person telling you, you know, that this is not okay or this is what you shouldn't do, you try to internalize that voice so that you don't make a fool of yourself, so that you don't have to be exposed and shamed like that in front of other people or even by a, another person. So instead of doing, instead of waiting for someone else to beat us down or bring us down that way, we want to do it first. We want to beat them to the punch and internally tell ourselves that that's that we shouldn't be doing that, that we shouldn't put ourselves out there, that we shouldn't put ourselves in a situation where we could be mocked or made fun of or whatever it is. And so that mechanism in itself is really called self-policing. That's a coping mechanism that tries to protect you by assuming what your worst critic would say so that you don't have to go through that shame and that hurt and that pain. So when I talk about self-policing, that's kind of what the behavior is. Your inner critic is one way that that can happen. But when you look at what self-policing does overall, it's kind of the practice of making others comfortable at the expense of your own comfort. And my inner critic, my self-policing was always very, very strong. I constantly did this. I constantly second-guessed everything I said. If I was in class in college, Sometimes I would even write down my ideas first and try to read them over during a class discussion so I could make sure that what I was saying wasn't completely stupid. And, you know, this is just on a regular day in a regular class. It's not like a test or an exam or anything. And that's how bad I didn't trust myself and I doubted every thought that came to my head. Everything I thought I was going to say, I thought it would be stupid and pointless and useless. So, you know, that's kind of the first step of it is that you're making everyone else comfortable regardless of what you have to say or whether what you have to say is important or not. And so you're constantly telling yourself to to read the room, to see what everyone else is doing, to look for examples before you allow yourself to even attempt that. And another aspect of self-policing that becomes a real issue is that when things actually come up in your life, you have no one to really talk to about it. And part of that is kind of the stigmas and taboos within South Asian culture, period. Um, but some of that also does tie back to self-policing because instead of bringing up something and kind of being vulnerable with that issue to your family or to someone you trust, you stop yourself from even talking about it because you know, you're afraid that you're going to get in trouble. You're afraid that you're going to bring shame upon your family or you're afraid that you are going to um, basically make someone uncomfortable, right? So what I mean is when we're growing up, if you have issues with, you know, boys or if you have issues with grades in school, like you're struggling in a certain subject, if you are struggling with your friend group, whether it's you know, if that has to do with gossiping or being backstabbed or betrayed, whatever that is, a lot of the time, us as teenagers, we were not allowed to talk to our parents about those things. You know what I mean? Like, you weren't, like, we, if we weren't even allowed to, you know, talk to boys or to have too many friends or to struggle in school. And so because we weren't allowed to do that, when those issues naturally came up, as they do for all teenagers and all people who are growing up, that is something that we're then cut off from communicating about. And again, I do attribute part of that to the stigmas within our culture. But at the same time, if you're constantly from even younger, from the age of six, seven, eight, realizing that what you are first have to say is wrong, then you're never going to be able to cross that boundary and talk about bigger issues. And that whole issue of not being able to talk to our parents about the real things that are going on in our lives 
that turns into that difficulty communicating as adults. When we're adults, we as South Asian people, not just South Asian women, don't know how to relate to our parents a lot of the time. It can be really difficult to talk about adult things. And that doesn't even mean anything appropriate, but it's just other than talking about what grades you're getting in school or what you're majoring in college or when you're going to get married, a lot of people don't have more discussions than that with their family. And it always just comes back to the same topic. So it's really setting up us up for not a good foundation with it with our parents and also it kind of puts us in this lonely isolated place of having to figure things out all by ourselves and that's why so many south asian women have this experience that they grew up way too quickly and not only does that is that true for a lot of south asian women who are the eldest daughter because then they're responsible for everyone else in the house but it's true for a lot of us because we're not really given that space to be mentored as children, to talk to someone about our friend dynamics or to talk about a guy that we might like or a girl that we might like. Like all of these things are so taboo and so wrong. And so because of that, we're completely cutting out that entire area of being able to relate to our parents from that young age. But the final thing about why self-policing is seriously so harmful is that it really becomes ingrained in everything that you're doing. So like I said, my inner critic and my my self-policing was so strong that I couldn't even speak up in class, whether it was a question or a statement, without having to analyze and overanalyze and write down and reread what I was going to say, even if it was just a casual statement. And so... So all of those things that your bully told you as a child become so ingrained in you that you start using that as kind of the base criteria for what you are about to do or say. And because that becomes a criteria, it's so second nature that you accept that as the perspective from which you need to see the world. Do you know what I mean? If your childhood bully told you that you were useless and that you couldn't ever get anything done right, then you're going to spend a lot of time in your adult life asking yourself if what you're about to do or say is useful. And you start seeing yourself as only valuable or productive or worthy when you are being of use to someone else because you're responding and fighting so hard against that bully that was telling you that you were useless. So instead of just saying something that would normally pop into your head, instead you're going through this mental process of, am I being useful? Am I bringing anything to this relationship? Are they still going to value me when I say this? And so it becomes this constant mental process of trying to see what someone else's reaction would be before you even allow yourself to say something. You're like, I don't want to go out on a limb and do this because then I'm going to possibly be shamed for it. And so instead of separating yourself as a leader, instead of doing something new that you've never done before, all of those things become basically impossible for you, not because you're not capable, but just because that's your way of keeping you out of shame. So self-policing really has bigger implications than just stopping yourself from one moment. It really changes the way that you step up in life and that you do anything. And, and that was a big thing for me is that, you know, sometimes something would I was in a lot of uh, different kind of leadership roles, whether it was a mentor for college students or whether I was, you know, teaching theater to middle school students when I was in college. There were a lot of times that I was in kind of a leadership role. But even if I knew that something would be good or I had like a new idea to make something more efficient or make something more fun, I would be scared to say it. And I was the one who was in a leadership role, right? But I still felt like, what if people think it's weird? What if I don't do the right thing? And so because of all those thoughts where I was 
was constantly stopping myself, I was actually stopping myself from stepping up as a leader overall. I was never the one, you know, giving out the first idea because I always wanted to wait and, like I said, read the room or see what everyone else was doing before I felt comfortable doing it. And that basically kind of defaulted me to being a follower. And as I've been, you know, crafting my own brand, becoming my own coach, talking about all the things that I talk about, and, you know, growing my platform, I have had to step into that position as a leader. And this has been such a great practice in me doing that through all the content and all the things that I put out there, because I'm realizing that, oh, I am capable of doing this. And the more that I try to put out a new idea or put out new content or come up with original things, the more that I realize that I am being recognized and rewarded for it and that people are resonating, you know? And so because of that practice of stepping up and not just second guessing myself, I've been able to inhabit this whole new arena of life. And that helps me push myself forward because when you think about self-policing or, you know, listening to your inner critic, you're everything you're doing is avoiding shame, but you're not necessarily attracting anything new into your life, right? So if you're avoiding shame and trying to stay small and trying to stay in this corner and trying to stay in your place and trying to make everyone happy and blah, 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 you're never going to stand out or do something different or, you know, live a different life. You're always going to be playing small. And that's something that I feel like is such a foundational lesson for South Asian women is our society constantly wants us to play small. Our society constantly wants to kind of take the individuality out to an extent and just keep you doing these certain roles. And of course, like I'm generalizing here, there's so many wonderful South Asian people that I know and that I love and that I don't know, you know, so I'm, I'm not trying to make our culture look bad or, you know, or, or make it seem like we don't know what we're doing or like we're all bad people or something like that's definitely definitely not true there's beautiful things about our culture but this is one of those things that's really difficult to hear but that we see on a constant basis and so you're not really always given the go ahead or the permission to you know go out there and and study whatever you want and become whatever you want and pursue that and pursue your career over whatever, like whatever our choices are, we're not really given the option to choose our own choices. But in South Asian culture, we're really given the most applause or we're seen as the most acceptable when we're stepping into these predetermined roles of wife, mother, daughter-in-law, daughter, etc. So when I talk about how self-policing really kind of changes our perspective on life and pushes us to play small over time you know we we really don't we really aren't open to all the things that are possible for us we really only see one possibility for our lives and we kind of feel like I, I can either you know get married at this age and do these things or I can upset my whole family and so a lot of us you know we don't want to upset our family we don't hate our family but at the same time, we want to feel autonomous, we want to feel independent, and if or when we get married, we want to do that because that's a choice, right? And so a lot of these things really change what we see as possible for ourselves. And so if you think, you know, I love my family, I don't want to anger them, then there's only one other option. And it's that either or thinking that's really damaging. But what I wanted to talk about here is the 
theory of possible selves. So the possible selves theory was developed by Hazel Marcus and Paula Nurius in 1986, and in their classic approach, they define possible selves as a, quote, future projected aspect of self-knowledge, which refers to what a person perceives as potentially possible in regard to themselves. I learned this theory in the education and psychology field. So children or students are given, you know, possible selves around them. Other people will, you know, compliment you or reward you or give you like attention for, you know, your skills and your traits. So say there's a student who's, you know, a great athlete and everyone's constantly telling him, hey, you're a great athlete, you're a great runner, you do this well and that well, that's going to become more of a possibility for that person. He's, he's going to think as a kid, maybe I could be, you know, a football player, maybe I could be a baseball player, whatever the situation is. And so that becomes a realm in his world of possibilities because he's gotten so much attention and recognition for that and a lot of push in that direction. Whereas, you know, in this example of South Asian women, if we're only told that, you know, you can be, you have to be a mom by 30, you have to be married and you have to be in this kind of family and et cetera, et cetera, then that's the possibility that you see. So instead of taking the harder route, we don't even believe that that harder route is possible. The possibilities that we see for our life informs every decision we make. And over time, those little decisions become bigger decisions that really impact how our life looks like on a day-to-day -day basis, right? So, so basically, the question here is, how can you expand your possibilities? And the cool thing is now, like I was saying, in our generation with our families, we may we may not have seen that many examples of women who aren't married and are, you know, having crazy careers. A lot of the examples that we see of aunties, of uncles, of our parents, of, you know, other women in our family is that, you know, they do live that lifestyle of, you know, being married and having long marriages and, and having children and raising them and, and all of that stuff and, and not always working. And so over time, you know, of course, we're seeing that change. But right now, we have such a breadth of so many more possible selves that we can see just through the internet, right? So, you know, I constantly see so many South Asian women doing amazing things, whether, you know, I mean, first of all, let's just talk about our vice president, that's amazing. But even outside of, you know, something at that high of a level, there's, you know, women who are doctors, who are influencers, who are models, who are actresses, who are stunt doubles, like there are people doing all these beautiful, amazing things, these artists, and there's just so much more of a breadth of possibility out there. But when I was younger, I didn't always see that, right? I was going to the family functions and seeing people who are in their 60s or 70s who all kind of live this similar life. So a big part of my childhood, it really just kind of seemed like that was the option. And even from a young age, I kind of knew that that, that probably wasn't going to be what I wanted. If you're looking for more examples of possible selves, like what you could be or what is possible out there, you know, go online. There are incredible, incredible people doing incredible work, and it really allows you to see that so much more is possible. And even um, one of the pages that I really love and respect on Instagram is called The Blindian Project, B-L Indian the Blindian. So basically, it's, um, you know, couples who are black and Indian, and they all have the most beautiful and fascinating stories. And some of their stories are a little bit more difficult or harder than others. Um, there is the occasional story where, you know, parents had to be cut off. But for the most part, even if there was that initial 
struggle with marrying someone out of your culture or even with the anti-blackness in the South Asian community, most families were able to really embrace that partner and over time, you know, they, they became a loving, a loved person in the family. And so even things like that can really open up, like all those stories can really open up in your mind what the realm of possibility is. And the thing is that power lies within yourself. What you're able to, you know, do and see for yourself really lies within yourself because we as South Asian women are told that there's only one way to go, but there's a million examples of people who aren't doing that already. And yes, your family might take it a little bit hard or they might give you, you know, some some flack for it. But at the end of the day, it's it's up to you. Would you rather live a life on a day-to-day basis that you feel empowered by and proud of and excited for and then occasionally have to deal with a conversation from your parents? Or would you rather do everything that your family wants for you, regardless of how much you don't want it, and then end up living your life completely miserable and completely just feeling looked over and feeling unseen, you know, because I would rather, you know, have a life that I'm happy with every single day and have to deal with some conversations that aren't my favorite once or twice a year than I would living my entire life doing things for other people that don't make me happy and then feeling like maybe I could catch a moment of happiness here and there for myself. Like, because the thing is, once you're in that situation of living a life for everyone else, it doesn't matter how much those people praise you or recognize you, you know that you're miserable and you don't feel right within yourself. And so that's what I want us to avoid. It doesn't matter what the decisions are or what it is that makes you happy or unhappy. What matters is that you feel like you have autonomy over your life and your choices and your decisions. So to kind of recap, like what you want, what you genuinely want is a possibility. But I know even from my own experience, I never allowed myself to think of what I want. Even in the last couple episodes in my 2020 recap as well, I talked about how I... I couldn't allow myself to think of having a nice house and traveling at the same time. And this is after years and years of working on allowing myself to see what I wanted. But like for so long, I just didn't, there were dreams that I had, but I couldn't even conceptualize me being in that dream. Do you know what I mean? Like I I was like, oh, there's no way that I can, you know, make money online because that would be too good to be true. And there's a lot of that kind of fear of success that I notice comes up in our community as well. We're always taught some level of self-sacrifice or some level of putting ourselves aside to make other people happy. And in some ways, a lot of that is what makes our culture beautiful and kind of collectivist. But at the same time, just because we're thinking of other people doesn't mean we need to harm ourselves. And if you actually think about that all the way around, that means that every person in the family should be taking care and have the well-being in mind of every other person in the family. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you're there for other people, then they should be there for you. But instead, we as South Asian women are taught to be there for other people, and then they're taught to just ask us for whatever they want. It's like we're this never-ending renewable resource, and that's just not true. And that's what really frustrates me is how much we're just kind of looked over. No one sees our you know, emotional labor and, and all those other things that we're constantly doing for other people. And so when you're not, when you're in that state of not being recognized and doing what you don't want to make everyone else happy, and then people still have things to complain about or still are asking more of you, that's just hurtful. And I think that's the worst part as well is that, you know, you could find the right person and get married on the right timeline, but is your wedding going to be big enough? Are you going to impress enough people? Are you going to have 
the kids at the right time? Are they going to be the the best kids? Are they going to have the best grades? Like, it's like as soon as you start doing things that you don't want to do to appease other people, it's not like it ends there. It keeps going. And I think for a lot of us, because we're taught to put our family first, because we're taught to self-sacrifice, we're like, oh, let me just do these few things. You know, let me go to school and get good grades and go to college and do really well and then graduate and get a job and then do this. And it's like, we like I always thought like oh maybe I can do enough to make my parents happy like maybe once I get married then my parents will be happy but I already know that that's not true because we've already talked about things like kids or where we're gonna live or how kids will be raised and so it's like the moment that you kind of start going down that road of oh if I just do this then they'll be happy and they'll leave me alone oh if I just do this then they'll be happy and the thing is they keep asking more and more and more of you And that's where we have to set boundaries. That's where we need to stop ourselves because we're not allowing ourselves to open up and to be free and to really trust ourselves. So again, coming back to self-trust through all of this, we're really doing things to make other people happy, putting ourselves aside, doubting ourselves, criticizing ourselves, policing ourselves. And it's like, at the end of all of that, do you even know who you are? And I don't mean that in a condescending way, because it took me years and years to find out who I am. I probably have only, I mean, I'm still struggling to find out who I really am and figure out what that even means. But I just feel like because of going back all the way before to what I said about us not having that independence, not having that autonomy, not having that those different personality traits that make us us. Instead, we're taught to just fit into a certain mold of roles that were predetermined before we were here. So at the end of all that, you don't even know who you are because you've never been allowed to be who you are, right? Like, when are we ever allowed to like even as kids going back to that first example how many times were you told not to play in the sun playing in the sun is like the most normal most human most childlike thing possible and even that was taken away from us right and why for our future husbands are you kidding me you know what I mean like all these things are so frustrating because we're not given a chance to know ourselves to create ourselves to see what kind of magic is within us and what we can bring to the table you know it's more about just how do you make other people happy? And I, I'm sick of even ask, asking that question. I don't want to answer that question, and I don't want to be asked that question. And I think that's fair for all of us to to feel that way. So really, um, you know, self-trust allows you to not second-guess yourself. Self-trust gives you that motivation and that impact to stand up for yourself and to, you know, ha- have boundaries and to to set boundaries and to, um, you know, make small decisions that really make you happier. And just another quick example, you know, when I was in college, I thought that I could only be a neuroscience major because, you know, that would kind of combine my interest of people and psychology and all of that with what would be impressive to brown people, basically. And, you know, I realized that I was totally miserable. I did not belong in like organic chemistry class and like just all these dumb things that just were so not me. Like, I know that that's not my strength and my skill set, but I was trying to force myself into it because that's what would make other people happy. And I remember I had such a mental breakdown when I ended up having to switch my major to psychology. Like, I just thought I was disappointing everyone. I thought I was failing everyone. But here I was willing to take the risk of doing something I was miserable in for the rest of my life, you know? And eventually setting that boundary and setting that decision to change my major, for some people, that's 
like nothing. That's just like what you do as a college student. But for me, it just felt like I had the disappointment and the expectations of my whole family on my shoulders. And that's the feeling that I'm talking about. Of course, that is not going to allow you to then freely express and figure out who you are because you're constantly, you're not allowed to be who you are from such a young age. And I really think we need to reclaim that. We need to take that space back and take our bodies back and take our minds back and sit in the sun for three hours if we want to like I mean wear sunscreen be safe but you know what I mean like I want to do all these things that I was never allowed to do as a kid or that I just felt like what wasn't appropriate or wasn't right even though it was just simple things do you know what I mean and so you know self-trust like I said it's that action piece of self-worth you need to know that you're deserving of living a life that you're happy with you need to know that you're deserving of these bright possible selves that you know you can see working for you but you also need to be able to trust yourself enough to take action on those things and again with that toxic work environment that self-trust is going to be that final piece of the puzzle that allows you to have the courage to walk to your boss's office and tell them that you are you know not going to be working there anymore or that it's not a conducive environment or that you would like some sort of change to happen and again i know some of you hearing that might cringe because you're taught not to have that power but it's okay to step into that power so i know that i've said a lot in this podcast and it might be a little bit overwhelming so i just wanted to say take a deep breath while it sounds like it's a lot of work Really, these things come down to being simpler than you probably would think. You know, it just comes to making small decisions. It just comes to honoring yourself. You don't have to sit down and write every single person in your family a letter about who you're going to be now and what you're going to do. It's just realizing and paying attention to, does this make me uncomfortable? Is there something I can do to change the situation so that I'm more comfortable? And something that I want to talk about, which I was just talking to someone on Instagram about this, but distance really is underrated. I know that for a lot of people, they, you know, their parents tell them that they need to move back home or that they need to live, you know, with their family, even after college, things like that. And again, ultimately, it's up to you. If you feel like living at home is a good environment for you and it's helpful for you, then that's absolutely great. But if you feel like being at home just isn't the best environment for you, and this doesn't even have to be about your family, it could just be, you know, that dynamic throws you off or you feel like you can't fully express who you are at home. So distance, I truly think, is an underrated tool in developing self-trust and in understanding more of who you are. And, you know, I talk to my parents on the phone a few times a week, if not more, but at this, and we honestly probably have grown closer over these folks phone calls and FaceTime visits and all of that. But in real life, I don't wake up in like an environment that's oppressive or try. I'm not in this constant mental battle. Like I feel like I am sometimes when I'm at home. And even with just being at home, a lot of us, when we go home for the holidays or whatever, no matter how old we are, being in that family home where you grew up, it almost like it reverts you back to being a teenager or back to kind of acting out. And so I just wanted to say that, you know, if that's you and you feel like there's that level of that, you even if you are sometimes happy at home, if it's more unhappy than happy, then maybe there's a place that you can move out. You know, I live a few states away and that's really, really helped me, you know, Um, and I don't think I would have grown as much. I don't think I would have even started this business if I didn't live in my own place and just kind of have my own air and my own way to express myself and my own area to make decisions. And so that's part of what I mean 
when I say that, you know, I live in a life where I can experiment and fail and decide to do something again and all of that, it's like I I wouldn't have necessarily had all those chances if I lived at home, but because I live on my own, I do. And so I just wanted to throw that out there. If it's something that you feel like would be beneficial for you, I truly think that it helps without having to, you know, destroy your family environment or get into constant fights all the time because that's taxing and it's draining and it and it hurts to um, be in that kind of environment all the time. And I just wanted to remind you that shame does not survive being spoken, right? I talked about shame a lot this episode and shame is a tactic that's often used in South Asian society as I'm sure you're familiar with. And so shame does not survive being spoken. And the more that we talk about these experiences, the more that we bond with one another, with one another the more that we understand and relate to one another about what we've all been through, the more that we really can grow and leave those things in the past and realize that that doesn't have a hold over us anymore. And I was really inspired by that idea and that concept. And so I'm actually launching a course called Not Your Betty, a guide to self-trust and decision-making for South Asian women. And I am so, so excited for this container. It's going to be a self-paced four-week course. And then every week there's going to be a group coaching session with me. So this is going to be a tight-knit container of South Asian women who, you know, just feel like they have struggled with being different, with fitting in, with balancing all of the struggles of South Asian society with what they know is true for them and with what they really want. And so, you know, like I said, it's not always that either or between making your family happy and, you know, doing what you want. There's a lot of gray area and a lot of nuance there. And choosing yourself doesn't mean that you're not choosing them or choosing yourself doesn't mean that you're actively hurting anyone else and that's one of the first things that I feel like we have to unlearn in our society that's taught to us constantly it's kind of taught to us that individuality hurts the collective but again that's not always true because you don't have to give up on your family to follow your dreams in most situations right you really can balance the two and find a lot of gray area between those two ideas. In this course, we are doing everything from, you know, understanding what your specific inner critic sounds like, what kind of self-talk they use, what kind of thoughts you hear frequently, and dissecting who that may have even come from in your life externally. We're going to be learning EFT, which is emotional freedom technique, also known as tapping, which is the method of tapping on your acupuncture points in your body so that you can release any stored or blocked emotion so that you can allow these emotions to kind of move through your body and not get stuck there. It also helps you release past pain. We're going to be talking about the roles that we have predetermined for us in South Asian society and what that really means for how we see life. And you're going to learn some meditations for how you can try to unlearn that idea that you're only valuable if you're needed by someone else. We're also going to learn more about figuring out how to even know what you want, because like I said, a lot of us aren't allowed to be dreamers. We're not allowed to just have anything that we want. We're only given a certain number of 
guidelines that we have to live within, right? So how do, can you even figure out what you want is, is something that we're going to dive into. Um, we're also going to talk about fear setting and something new, which is success setting. So again, like I mentioned in this episode, we have a lot of fear of failure, a fear of disappointing other people like I did with my college major and all of that. But we also have a lot of fear of being successful, being in that leadership position. A lot of us are kind of afraid for it because we're taught that that's not good for us, that we need to kind of come in secondhand or kind of be under the radar or not have a lot of attention on us. And so because of that, you know, we're going to learn how can you deal with your fear of success that you may be struggling with. So there's so much more on top of that. And the best thing about this course is also that it's self-paced and I didn't include a ton of homework. So a lot of courses, they're very, very dense. They have 10 plus videos you have to watch a week. Mine is um, a little bit more straightforward and simple. So I have, you know, one or two kind of videos that you might have to watch for the week and then maybe like a journal prompt or a specific PDF or something that like that that you can use. And so they're very simple. They're very straightforward. But our group coaching is really where we dive into the nitty gritty. So that's where you're going to be able to let me know what you're facing in terms of of resistance, what you're doing wrong. And that's another thing. We don't give our, ourselves space in South Asian society at all to talk about what we do that's wrong or what we do that was imperfect. We're always taught to look perfect, be perfect, get the perfect grades, have the perfect family, perfect, perfect, perfect. And it's exhausting and no one's really like that. So I want to hold space for you to be able to say I messed up or I didn't do my homework this week and it's because I'm freaking out about this. And that's okay. I want to hold that space for you so that you can embrace that life is sometimes imperfect and messy, but that everything can still be okay despite that. And so, um, again, the group coaching is where you'll be able to, you know, chat with each other, listen to more of what each other is going through and how we all have similarities and can relate to one another on top of that. And then um, I also wanted to have a space where you could talk to each other if you wanted. It's not going to be mandatory at all, but there is going to be a Slack channel so that if anyone wants to share anything or if you feel, you know, particularly lit up by someone's story from a group call, you can always leave it in Slack and just, um, have a space to communicate with everyone else that isn't, you know, within a coaching session. So um, that's kind of the format of the course. It's really four simple group calls and then a lot of straightforward and simple but very, very effective tools, meditations, and lessons for you. And the best thing about the tools and the journal prompts and the PDFs that I give you is that they're all reusable and that you will have access to them for a lifetime. So those things are, you know, things that you can rely on and use and kind of use to strengthen your muscles about decision making and about fear setting. The other thing that I wanted to say about my course is that I'm not going to have homework that's due. And this is actually kind of tricky on my part because I want to test your self-trust, right? So I want to see if you can hold yourself accountable or if you struggle with that. Because a lot of us, like I said before, I actually said this on my Instagram page, but we all are good. We're really good at doing what other people tell us. We're not so good at doing what we want for us. We're not so good at 
doing things that we don't have to do, right? But we're great at doing things that we have to do. We go above and beyond that constantly. And so I'm turning it back on you and kind of asking you to put yourself in the driver's seat of when you want to do your homework and how you want to pace this course for yourself. So the only thing that's really set in stone is those group coaching calls. And outside of that, you know, the homework is up to you, how you want to do the work, when you want to do it, if you want to do it, that's all completely up to you. And that's kind of my way of holding another space for you to find yourself, to learn a little bit more about yourself, to be a little bit uncomfortable in that not knowing, and then to find your way out of it because I know you can. I know you can. And the final thing about this course that I want to mention is that I'm having a graduation ceremony for it for the students in the class, and it is going to be so cute, so beautiful. It's going to be a burning bowl ritual that we're going to do over Zoom. So this um, graduation ceremony, it's really going to be a way of us kind of writing down all the crap that we want to let go of that we've learned in this course, all the stuff that you don't need in your life anymore. And I'm going to lead you through a burning bowl ritual. So we're going to light that piece of paper on fire and we're going to really let go of all these past beliefs and all these things that have been holding us back and of course you know I'll always be here for you and so will the people that you meet in this course they are going to be I have a feeling lifetime companions and friends because this is going to be such a powerful way in which we're all drawn together so I honestly cannot wait. This course begins on February 2nd, um, so you still have time to sign up if you are listening when this episode comes out. And if you have any questions about the course, you can always head over to my Instagram. So you can always send me a DM if you have any questions, but I do have a entire playlist on my Instagram of IGTVs that are all centered around this course and this topic. Um, I also talk about other, I also have a series where I break down different South Asian memes and talk about those, which was really, really fun to do. And people seem to like that a lot. So um, again, all the FAQs, all of that information, if you're curious, will be um, on my Instagram through a series of videos. But if you know that you are ready to sign up and enroll in the course and the link to do so will be in the description or the show notes below. The final final thing that I want to say about this course is that it is a bargain deal right now. Um, You can get it for $3.99 or three payments of $1.49 and this is the lowest I will ever 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 offer this course. I'm already thinking that I may offer it again next year or potentially at the end of this year but I'm not gonna offer this course for less than a thousand dollars ever again so if this is piquing your interest if you are really drawn to this content if you feel like you could relate to so much of what I said then get your butt inside this course because it is going to be huge it is going to be so impactful and it's honestly going to be life-changing and that's really my goal with this is to hold space so that you can reignite your power like I said you are able to enroll at any time through the link in the show notes so that you can reserve your spot before it gets filled up. If you're not sure if Not Your Betty, my online course, is going to be the right thing for you, I do still offer one-on-one self-worth coaching and I offer one-on-one tarot reading and self-worth coaching combination sessions. So if either of those call out to you, the links to sign up for both of those will be in the show notes. All right, so I'm going to wrap this podcast up and I'm going to do something a little bit different. I actually did some channeled writing yesterday. I had some messages come through for you, so I wanted to just kind of read it verbatim. So let's jump into it to close out this episode. You are worthy of a life of independence and deep, deep joy. 
You deserve it just for being you. I know that you are so, so strong and you deserve to use that strength for yourself, not just for everyone else. You do have power over your own life. Don't live in agony. Pain and feelings are meant to be felt, not carried. I'm going to say that one more time. Feelings are meant to be felt, not carried. Your past doesn't need to be perfect to let it go. And you don't need to be perfect and happy to enjoy your life. Nurture yourself. Pour into yourself. Wrap yourself in a hug. Be gentle in your self-talk. Maybe soften the anger that you held towards those around you. Resentment and anger hurts your body and hardens your heart more than it will them. I love you. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider leaving a review on the Apple Podcast app or sharing it with someone who you think would benefit from it. If you'd like to schedule one-on-one self-worth coaching, group coaching, or enroll in one of my online courses, visit linktr.ee slash Betty Grew Up. That's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash B-E-T-I Grew Up. Thanks so much for listening and happy healing.